You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 66, Money and Spending. Just about everybody on earth has to deal with money. Even if you deal with uh, sheep and (laughs) barter stuff, you have to pay the government taxes in currency. So it's kind of a universal thing people have to deal with. And there's a frightening number of people who don't save enough money. Uh, Lots of people wish they had more money. And ultimately, uh, how you deal with your money is a psychological issue. And we have a guest today on Minding the Brain from Carleton University, the psychology department's uh, Johanna Peets, who uh, does a variety of things in her uh, work, but lately has been very interested in the the psychology of money. So, uh, Johanna, let's start off with, like, what are some of the biggest mistakes people make with money? Uh, do they do they overspend? Do they make poor investment decisions? Like, what do you what do you see as the big stumbling blocks to people's financial management? Well, to me, the biggest problem is that people often make mistakes when they think about what they will do themselves in the future. So they misestimate how much um, they will spend. They will perhaps predict they'll have more money than they really do. And then they commit to other financial ventures that they then end up not being able to afford. So uh, overall, I don't think spending money per se is a problem for people, but spending more than you have or spending more than you want to spend, so more than your goals, that can end up becoming a problem. And these... um, these mistakes in predicting how you'll act in the future or thinking, oh, I will not be tempted by this sale. I can go to the store and then ending, ending up spending a lot more than you wanted. Like those things uh, happen in part because people are very optimistic about the future and they think about best case scenarios and they neglect the temptations that they will encounter and uh, how hard it'll be to resist these temptations. Yeah, so... So they uh, do they think about like saving for the future and how much they'll need, or do you find that people don't even don't even think about it enough? <laughs> oh no, you know, you know, great question. Yeah, no, uh, we do find that people do think about the future. Um, they might differ in how far ahead in the future they think. <laughs> so, so people rarely think of retirement, you know, like that, especially younger people. Um, but many people think ahead to like, oh, what what will I need um, for next weekend going out, or or how much uh, will be in my budget for next month? So people do think about the future. They do plan ahead. I guess I guess I was being more specific. I was I was I think I was thinking more specifically like do they I mean it might only take a you know 10 minutes to do but to actually like look up prices for staying in a elder home and estimating how many years you'd be in it and how much money you need to save for retirement. Like, do they do they go through that exercise or do they just sort of vaguely think about, oh yeah, I need money for the future? <laughs> oh yeah, we don't have I don't have any data myself on whether they actually do those um, very detailed predictions. I would say they probably vaguely think about the future rather than making detailed, um, you know, data supported estimates. Yeah, yeah. So there's no shortage on the internet of advice for managing personal finances. So, uh, you know, do you did you do any kind of review of what's out there and what are the what are the common advice that you've seen published out there mm-hmm. we um, together with my students we actually looked at both the academic literature like what do researchers think is important um, 
to help you self-control and also what does the media think is important <laughs> so we anal we did a meta-analysis of research papers and we did an analysis of uh, pages on google like the first hundred uh, search results that we found on google when we entered things like uh, i want to save less or how to control my spending And what we found was really interesting. So they only overlapped by about 50%, the advice that the experts, the academics had, and the advice that the media pages gave. Um, and what's, what was in the media was um, one strategy that the academics shared that was really good, and that's proven to be empirically effective, which is avoid temp tempting situations, right? If you know you're tempted... Um, buy shoes and don't go to the shoe store while they're on sale, while they have a big sale on, you know, those kinds of things are helpful. And uh, media does advise that. But there were also some um, media advice that was actually, that is probably not that good and not that effective. For example, couponing and deals shopping was a very common advice we found on the media pages. But there is a lot of research out there showing that uh, those things actually lead people to spend more rather than less because uh, they might... Which probably explains why they make coupons. Uh, exactly. I mean, there's a reason why these companies produce coupons and it's not to save us money, it's to make money. So actually, <laughs> you know... Exactly. Yeah, so it, it really, but still, media do advise you to, to do it. And I think it, that comes down to this best case scenario, because you probably, if you're really effective, if you're like the type of person that you described earlier, who is, who's thinking about retirement homes and does price comparison of those in their 20s, you know, if you're that kind of person, then maybe couponing can be good for you because you can trick all those um, companies and, and actually make a profit. But for the vast majority of people, that won't be the case, right? You will just... Um, fall prey to some of those tricks they, they use for them. And another really common media advice that I don't think is all that great is uh, the do-it-yourself approach, right? So that was often recommended. And um, many of those things, like sewing your own clothes, growing your own vegetables, actually require a high setup cost and uh, also strong time commitment. And many people might uh, pay the setup cost and then fall short on actually reaping the benefits later, right? So I believe that. Yeah. Uh, Who's going to churn their own butter? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's, e it's easier to buy a butter churner than to actually churn butter. <laughs> right, and it's possible. And I have seen, like, some of those pages did advise things, like, make your own yogurt. And, like, I'm like, yeah, possible, but who who's going to do it? And, yeah, is it not just going to be you buying all these yogurt-making supplies and then they sit around? Yeah. Like dust? Something I like to think about a lot is what my time is worth to me. So, mm -hmm. you know... Um, Like if I'm going to save five bucks to spend an hour doing this, how I think about like how much would my, how much would I have to be paid for my neighbor to, how much would my neighbor have to pay me to do that for him? Right. Yeah. And if it's less than five bucks, I'm like, no, I'm not doing it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And sometimes I feel they, some of this advice might be good if you enjoy doing gardening and uh, yogurt making and those things, right? Then you do it for those reasons, but don't have the illusion that you're also saving money. <laughs> so as a spending advice, like as a spending control advice, it's not great, but it might be great for, for other reasons. Like as a, here's some unusual hobbies you can consider. Yeah. What, one piece of advice I see all the time and I've heard many times is to make a budget. But I found that very unhelpful because it saying make a budget doesn't include any instruction about how to make sure you follow the budget. 
and and it you know and it seems so fruitless to me to say well I'll spend this much on food unless you've got a system for tracking and so I you know it was years until I actually read a book called All Your Worth. Do you ever read that book? No. Uh, it turns out it's by Elizabeth Warren. I didn't know she was a big deal when I read the book, but that totally changed my life. And I followed the advice, and suddenly I had a budget that helped me get my finances under control. Nice. It you know just make a budget is so vague. <laughs> yeah, I I imagine it's vague because people do differ in uh, how detailed their budgets are, right? So what will work for one won't work for the other. Like you can. Um, you can, some people might, for them, it might be enough to just say, I'm not going to go over $200 on my groceries. And then they are able to keep track of that. And others do need like little notifications popping up as they're, uh, as they're shopping to remind them of that uh, budget and, right. and such. Yeah. I, I guess, I guess what I'm getting at is like, even if you wanted to like keep your, your grocery spending under a certain amount. Mm hmm. You've got you've got to set up some kind of system. Are you collecting receipts? Are you putting it in a spreadsheet? Are you remembering to do that? Where are you putting mm -hmm. your receipts so you have it, like it just seems like that's that's beyond so many people that it should be part of the advice. Yeah, no, that's true. You know? And there are uh, nowadays there are a lot of really cool online tools you can use. That uh, if you pay by credit card or debit card, for example, the banks can export and make your budget for you, or track those things for you because they're earmarked from the grocery stores, right? Like they can, you can with one button sort all your expenses that are purchased electronically into different categories, like grocery versus others. Of course, then you <laughs> once you pay for other things in the grocery store, it'll just get counted as groceries. But like minus these small, small kind of shortfalls, uh, you don't, a lot of this can be automatized. Yeah. And now that everybody's using credit cards all the time, it's even more sensible. Mm -hmm. um, so do you want to give me your opinion of these recommendations? Mm -hmm. The most important thing is if you're trying to give people concrete personal advice, because psychology usually deals just in averages, right? But if you want to give them personalized advice, I think what you should tell them is think about all the strategies you're already using, because those are probably the ones that work best for you. And use those more and better. So more consciously, like actually write down what you're doing and then do that uh, very consciously every day. And I think that will be more more effective for each individual than trying to teach them things that don't necessarily work for you. Like you saying, oh, budgets don't work for me, then it won't help you if I tell you, oh, well, the research thinks budget should work for you, Jim, you know, and it helps more if you're actually thinking about what does work for me and then do that. Oh, wow. And did you do a study that showed this? Yes, actually, we did uh, try to, we did try to <laughs> help people by telling them what to do and we failed. <laughs> so we tried, uh, we tried giving them the advice we had found in the academic literature search. And we tried giving another group of people the advice we had found in the media to compare which, which advice is actually better, you know. And a third group, well, we just asked, write down what you're already doing. And do that. And then everybody was told, do these strategies you either read about that we told you about, or do the strategies that you wrote down yourself. And the group that really saved the most money or spent the least money over a course of a month was the group that had just written down what they already do. So they outperformed like that advice of just do what you're already doing and tell us what strategies work as opposed to we tell you what strategies work. Though that group saved a lot in the, uh, I think it was around 12% less than the other groups or than they had spent before. That is fascinating. Like, is, is that based on, 
uh, findings in other aspects of psychology, or did you, you or your grad student like just come up with this idea, or how'd you come up with the the the? I wouldn't even have thought to put in that condition. You know, <laughs> how'd you think of it? The, we we did several of these studies, and the very first study that we ran, it, we just thought of it as a control group. So we hadn't thought of that oh, being wow. the effective one. But once we saw this big effect, we said, oh well, we have to replicate this and see if it happens again, <laughs> and it happened again. So then we were like, okay, no, this must be actually something that really um, is a very powerful, more meaningful uh, to our participants and us instructing them. And we did in our follow-up studies, we thought, oh, well, maybe we just didn't explain these strategies well enough or we didn't get participants excited enough. So we did our very best to make them as interesting as possible. We recorded little videos explaining the strategies and we asked them to write out examples of the strategies. So they were really engaged with it. But even, even then, the strategies they themselves came up with were more effective. So it wasn't that we just explained them poorly or that they were not listening well enough to us explaining them or something. So it was really something about the, I come up with these strategies myself and these are the ones that fit best for me. And that's actually what we thought was the driving factor is the fit with the personality and the fit with your financial situations. So at some some of these advice, like with the couponing that I mentioned earlier, right? Like some people are just couponing generally bad, but for some people, it's going to be excellent advice. So if it works for them, right? Like then that strategy is going to be the most effective for them and saves them a lot of money, but um, not for anyone else. It, that's interesting. It makes me wonder, like, uh, what if they also wrote down the things that they were doing that wasted money and tried deliberately to avoid those things? Has that ever been tried? I we have not tried that. I don't know of anyone else who's tried it. That's very interesting. Yeah, because like the the the, the money saving stuff is sort of half the battle, right? Yeah, you know the 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 there you know if somebody like saves money all the time, but then every year buys a new truck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the learn like, from your mistakes. They're, they're only doing yeah. one thing that spends money, but it's like it's like messing up their finances. You know. So okay, so so you probably looked at what these things were. Do they overlap with the advice in the media and stuff and academics? Yeah, we actually had some people read through all the things that people wrote because we, we at first, like, recall, this was all unexpected to us, right? We thought this was just a control group initially. Um, we thought, oh, maybe they just come up with this magic strategy that no one in the literature or the media has ever considered, you know? So we're like, let's find out what this magic thing is. But there was nothing magic. It was just the almost the exact same kind of strategies about 60% overlap. And then there were some things that hadn't been mentioned in the media or uh, in the academic literature, things like I call my my partner, my romantic partner when I'm tempted and ask him to talk me out of it. <laughs> things like that. Oh, so those are wow. like really kind of creative solutions. Or one person mentioned they actually put their, they hide their credit card and then they have to find it before they make a purchase <laughs> and it takes a long time to find it. So then by that time, they don't want to make the purchase anymore. So there were a number of unique ones, but a lot of the one, a lot of the strategies that people mentioned were similar ones as the ones that the ac academics had recommended or that media had recommended. Interesting. I, I feel like people, when they think about curbing their spending, they, they kind of have this implicit idea that it's a matter of just having the fortitude and the willpower to spend less. Um, does science track that? Like, it, 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 it does having a high willpower predict that you're going to, like, save more money? 
Mm-hmm. Well, uh, high willpower is not bad. <laughs> like it definitely will will help you spend less. Um, but the more recent thinking in the field is uh, that self-control is much more than willpower. So it actually extends beyond the situation in which you're tempted. And there is a lot of things that you can do before even getting to the tempting purchase, before you even get to the store with the sales on, for example, um, that will help you control your spending. So you can, um, like that uh, person who wrote they're hiding their credit card, right? So you can leave some... Um, Some of your payment, ma you can control your payment method in a way that might make it less likely you spent money. You can uh, bring a little a reminder of your goal, perhaps a photo of your partner who you know <laughs> doesn't want you to spend money. Like there is a lot of uh, things that you can do that in the moment might make it more likely that you act in a more goal directed manner as opposed to a temptation manner. Yeah. That's really, yeah, it's really interesting that there's more to self control than willpower. Mm hmm. Um, that's a, that's very insightful. Tell me about what, what do people, we you know when they imagine self-control and willpower, what do they think it is? Yeah. Uh, they probably tend to think more of that uh, willpower aspect. And we actually had, um, a couple of studies on that as well, where we're looking at, uh, we're asking people to either describe someone who is uh, successful at uh, making good Decisions. This wasn't specific about finances, but more general self-control decisions, and uh, rate them on uh, scales of self-control. And we found that if you describe someone as making good decisions uh, because they use a lot of strategies, or someone describes someone as being good at um, making financial decisions because they use just willpower, people thought that person just using willpower, not strategies was higher on self-control. So the concept, how people, how lay people think about self-control often probably includes this concept of um, effortfully suppressing the temptation and exerting willpower as opposed to manipulating situation in a way that makes it easier, you know, to make the right choices and perhaps setting up your environment and making a choice architecture in a way that benefits your uh, decisions. Yeah, and I just want to say that that this um, engineering your environment to help you make better decisions goes way beyond money, and mm -hmm. uh, you know uh, I think we talk about it in the habits episode of this podcast. Um, you know, just it's a very very powerful thing. Just adding a little friction to the things you don't want to do, and adding you know making it easier to do the things that do align with your values is is really the best way to go in a lot of different domains. Mm -hmm. And I do want to tell you how I how we came to study this or why I was interested in this originally. Yeah, please. And that was, um, I talked to someone, a relative who is not at all linked to psychology <laughs> uh, or an academic, and she had problems with her teenage son spending a lot more than she thought he should <laughs> and running out of money all the time, not saving for university and things like that. And I told her I was in the middle of doing these other studies and I had learned just so much about strategies and I was very excited to tell her about all these things like, oh, have, has he tried this and this and this? And she rejected these ideas and said like, well, but he should be able to control himself. He shouldn't need those tricks, you know? So it was really the idea of like, it's uh, morally better to just use willpower rather than strategies and that was just so mind-blowing to me that that someone would say like well i know this might work but you shouldn't use those tricks because they're just uh it just makes you a weak person somehow so that's why we started looking at the 
at whether some people share, whether more people share this belief. And we did find, yeah, like some people think that. And I really want to tell everyone out there listening, you know, that it's not, that's not the case. Use the strategies that make it easier on you. There's nothing bad about it. And any psychologist will say you have great high self-control if you're using strategies. Right. Right. Interesting. Uh, we've talked, you've, you mentioned a couple of times your partner. That makes me, you know, it reminds me that a lot of uh, financial stuff is, you know, it's not always just your money. Sometimes it's shared money with your with your spouse or something like that. And it, I feel like arguments about money are at the root of a lot of disagreement in a household. Did, did you any... Uh, you know of any research that investigates that? Mm -hmm. uh, there's a number of interesting studies that look at frequency of conflict about money as opposed to frequency of conflict about things like shores or in-laws or kids or um, sex. And among those many different topics of conflict, money isn't perhaps the most frequent one. Uh, so it accounts for maybe 20% of the conflicts in some of the studies that looked at it in a diary uh, between married couples. But... Um, it is one of the most pernicious and longest lasting conflicts. And together, like both conflicts about money and conflicts about sex are the, uh, the best predictors of divorce in a sense, you know, like the other conflicts, uh, topics in those studies seem to be resolved and not be as predictive of relationship resolution. But if people fight about, fight a lot and consistently about those two topics, then that, uh, is much more likely that they will not resolve it and that the relationship will resolve, um, fail. Wow. I mean, considering how expensive divorce is, it's kind of ironic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, sometimes fighting about money is also fighting about underlying issues, right? Like things like power, right. balance. And so it all, it all kind of is a bit muddled. Like you can't completely distinguish the topic, but uh, it's definitely, it's definitely one of the topics that rouses a lot of emotions in people, you know, <laughs> like it's not a topic you can discuss uh, in a very objective and calm manner for most people. Yeah. I, I, I think about, you know, couples listening to this podcast together and feeling really uncomfortable. So sorry, everybody. Um, <laughs> uh, so did you look at the, the like, there are different kinds of financial disagreements. Did you do any study to sort of sort them into categories? Mm -hmm. We're, uh, that's one of our most recent uh uh, publications in the lab and here we looked at two ways actually to look at uh, what do couples fight about when they fight about money because as I mentioned like uh, it's not always so clear-cut if you fight about money what are you really fighting about is it different values you know what is it really that's at the bottom of this uh, fight and uh, we looked at um, well two things one, we looked at social media complaints because there we felt like, oh, if we're just going out there and we're asking people, well, what did you fight about money uh, recently, right? They might, uh, first of all, not have had a recent fight about money. They might not want to tell us, right? And we might only not capture very many different types of disagreements. So we thought, well, one place where people really talk a lot about the fights with their partner is uh, social media, like Reddit, Reddit relationships. And we scraped from the web over 1,000 um, people on Reddit who had complained specifically about a financial conflict with their partner and used those descriptions to code them in a thematic analysis into different types. And then in a second uh, study, we also asked married couples to recall a recent conflict and also code those to see if there was overlap. And there was actually a lot of overlap. And the biggest overlap was that the two major themes were 
kind of uh, concerns about fair fairness in the relationship. So f people were fighting because they felt the partner didn't contribute enough uh, to the relationship. And that uh, not enough or too much. Like there were people were also fighting about things like, oh, you're paying uh, the gift giving is unequal in this relationship or um, who pays for dates is unequal or how much is contributed to the household expenses, all those things. Um, that was all kind of the fairness concern. The other big theme was a irresponsible spending of the partner. So one person thinking that the partner spends irresponsibly and that um, again was entirely subjective in how we read these uh, descriptions. So it might have been one person thinking the partner shouldn't spend money on soap because <laughs> why do you need fancy soap when the cheap soap will do, right? So they're highly subjective things and the other person said, no, I do need to uh, buy my favorite soap because that is what makes me happy in life, right? So co like it wasn't coming from the outside. You could not tell like, oh, who is in the right? You know, it was just very clear they're fighting because one perceives the other to be irresponsible and the other one feels attacked by that. So if somebody's, let's say you had a couple and they're both kind of spendy, uh, it, does that cause problems? Or like, I guess, is it that bad spending habits in general contribute to the relationship problems? Or is it that that they're mismatched, like the couple has different different ideas about how money should be spent. Mm -hmm. um, well, first of all, if if both people are very spendy and they're actually in financial distress because of those um, perhaps uh, continuing bad decisions, that will probably lead to more problems in the relationships because we also found that financial stress does contribute to um, like just not having enough money for essentials. Like that does definitely contribute to. Um, poor relationship outcomes, probably because of mood effects and so on. But we also found in some studies that if both people report, like if there is a match on, uh, on two, uh, on how much of a spencer someone is, that actually then is good for the relationship or it buffers them, buffers you from some of the negative effects. So sharing values is also a very important predictor of harmony or financial harmony. And actually there's some fascinating research, not by us, but by Vic and uh, Small and Finkel from earlier showing that people are often attracted to their own opposites in terms of financial orientation. So people who tend to save, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's like a fatal attraction, they call it. <laughs> so uh, people who tend to be more on the saving side tend to be more attracted to people who are tend to be more on the spendy side and vice versa. And that, of course, then creates problems in their relationships down the line too, which we also found, right? Like discrepant values create problems. But um, it actually might sometimes be attractive in the beginning too <laughs> that's weird do we know why mm. they did not uh, look at it they do speculate right that perhaps um it's just the novelty of it wow that's that's i i, I would not expect that because i know people tend to tend to like people like them right so it's mm -hmm. interesting when you find those uh those uh, exceptions mm -hmm. um in one of your papers you write about what you call integrated and non-integrated values can you want to explain what you mean by that well, this was part of our uh, looking at similar or different values between couples, right? So uh, integrated motives are um, more positive motives about money. So when we were talking about uh, what do, what values do people have and do they have similar or different values, there are probably 
more different values than just liking to spend or liking to save. There's also some deep-seated meaning of money that people uh, feel, and that's in part why money is such an emotional concept. So integrated motives are things like when money means uh, more positive personal growth-promoting things to you, such as I I want money because I want to feel pride, I want to feel free and enrich my leisure activities, those kinds of really personal growth or provide security for my family, all these really personal uh, positive values, you could call it self-integrated motives. And um, there's also the non-integrative motive. So you might want to, money might mean things to you like power and being better than others, you know, and showing that uh, that you don't need anyone else. And those kinds of more negative or more non-integrated motives um, we call non-integrated motives. Okay, cool. Um, okay, so you've done some work on what you call financial snooping. That's a great term. Uh, tell, me, tell us what financial snooping is. It's the idea that people might uh, sometimes want to find out what their partner is up to financially without actually telling them about it. And this arose from our study on Reddit, where we asked people, what are these conflicts? And one of the conflicts that they mentioned, which we coded as kind of part of the general dimension of partner irresponsibility, um, is uh, the one-sided decisions or people hiding finances from the partner, not telling them about things like not telling them their income or how much they've spent on gifts or how much they give their family and so on. And uh, in the financial snooping project, we're interested in finding out, do they do people look into their partner's finances without them knowing? So do they try to find out stuff about how much they spend or how much they make? Wow. And it's, it's rare. It's rare, Jim. It, people don't oh, okay. admit to doing it very much. However, like maybe 30% of them say they, they do it. Uh, and then when we ask them, though, to describe an instance in which they've done it, about 80% of them could easily describe an instance in which they've done it. So perhaps it's more common than they'd like to admit it. Um, but oftentimes people also don't think of it as a very major invasion of privacy, or, or at least the person who snoops doesn't see it that way, right? They say, oh, my partner would probably not mind, but I'm still not going to ask them. <laughs> Just going to find out on the side. Right. Interesting. Um, so people can be under financial stress, um, but there's also this concept of financial anxiety that you explored. So why don't you talk about the difference between financial stress and financial anxiety? Mm -hmm. The two are very similar. So in our studies, they correlate about 0.8. So you can almost think of them as the same construct. But anxiety is a little bit more, um, uh, includes a little bit more of the cognitive uh, rumination about uh, money as well and the way we've been assessing it anyways, our scale. So uh, you might think about when, whenever when you have financial stress, so if you actually have to worry about where's the money coming from for um for my expenses in the next month, then that might really interfere with uh, the rest of your thoughts during the day. So you might find yourself constantly thinking about money, constantly worrying about it, having these negative emotions about it. So it's uh, perhaps a bit more of a severe, uh, more encompassing construct in the way we've measured in this in the study. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, uh, getting back to snooping, um, did you ever look at the consequences of snooping? 
We didn't look at consequences of snooping. We looked at um, what predicts snooping. And we did find that, for example, stress and anxiety, financial stress and anxiety predicted snooping. And that um, kind of makes some sense if you think of um, stress and anxiety about finances creating a sort of um, uncertainty in your life. So if you worry about, will we have enough money? Um, why don't we have enough money? I feel we should have more money. <laughs> then that uncertainty might uh, make you want to reduce that uncertainty by finding out more information about your financial situation. And you might do that by snooping into the uh, partner's affairs, right? So we did find a link, a correlation between um, anxiety, financial anxiety, and uh, the extent to which people said it would be acceptable to snoop in into the partner's finances. However, we also had several studies in which we tried, in which we manipulated financial anxiety briefly so we made people actually think about things that make them financially anxious and it did not affect their attitudes towards snooping in the moment so we really think this must be like a more long-term process by which anxiety is linked with uh, snooping rather than an in the moment i feel anxious just right now and then i think it's okay to to snoop so it seems more like a long-term association rather than an in the moment association yeah that's interesting. So, uh, all right. So, let's. Um, if there's a takeaway from here, I think the most important one is probably that if you want to do better with your finances, you should do some reflection on what kind of strategies have worked for you in the past and try to scale them up a little bit. Um, if you're interested in learning more about uh, Johanna's research, um, her name is spelled J-O-H-A-N-N-A, -N -N -A, and her last name is Peetz. That's P-E-E-T-Z or P-E-E-T-Z for Americans. Um, and uh, everyone can congratulate themselves for spending time listening to a free podcast that doesn't cost anything. And, um, and maybe you could reward yourself by going out and buying something for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Johanna, for coming out. Thanks, Jim. If you find this content valuable and you want to support the show, consider leaving us a review or rating on your podcast app of choice. We have more episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrain.com. If you want to connect with Minding the Brain on social media, you can find us on Instagram at mindingthebrain. Minding the Brain is looking for sponsors. If your company is interested, you can contact us at mindingthebrainpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Minding the Brain.